Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello again and welcome to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. Thank you to my darling daughter Bibi for that great introduction. And thank you all for tuning in to the only podcast dedicated to the works of the greatest playwright who ever lived, William Shakespeare. I'm Shannon Riley. I'm not a Shakespearean scholar. I do not claim to be one. I just happen to be somebody who really loves the works of William Shakespeare. And I've been using this podcast to introduce each of his plays one at a time and talk a little bit about where they came from, what they might possibly mean, and how it might affect Shakespeare's life. I am very much a Stradivarian. I believe very much that the works of William Shakespeare were written by William Shakespeare, and you'll hear that in all of my arguments in this podcast. Today, we're talking about Cymbeline, which is a uh, little-known play. Matter of fact, many people I've talked to just recently, and I said I'm going to be doing Cymbeline next, said they had no idea what I was talking about. They had never heard of the play. And it's really too bad, because this is a very, very good play. Some scholars have called it a sort of parody of Shakespeare's works, in a way, that Shakespeare himself uses so many of the same tropes that he's used in multiple plays before, but he uses them in a new and unique way. For instance, we have once again in Cymbeline, a young woman disguising herself as a man in order to hide and protect herself while she's traveling. This is done in other plays, As You Like It, uh, Merchant of Venice, a variety of places. But the lady in question here is no Beatrice. This lady is no Portia. She is indeed much more of a maiden in distress. Imogene is her name, and she's going to be the main topic of our talk today. By the way, some people say the name was misspelled, that it wasn't ever really meant to be Imogene. It was really Inogene meant to kind of play off the word innocent. In some spaces, I've noticed that when I've gone and done my research, continue to call her Inogene. I'm going to be calling her Imogene because that's how it is spelled in the first folio, wrong or right, so that's what I'm going to use. Imogene is a great character. The whole play is great. It's been called Shakespeare's action play because so many things happen. It bounces from very early prehistory Britain to ancient Rome, back and forth across Britain. It is really a a fascinating, fascinating play. But let's talk about the title first. It's called Cymbeline, and Cymbeline is based on a king who really did rule Britain. And his name might have been Cymbeline. Uh, Some people say it wasn't Cymbeline. Some of my researchers said that his name was actually Cnobeline. 
doesn't really matter because Shakespeare only uses the name in the time period, which, by the way, is a little bit before the birth of Christ. He ruled and, and up until 35 AD. So this is a very old king of England. But we don't learn much about his life in this play because it's all completely made up in Shakespeare's version. And Cymbeline himself doesn't even have that much to do in the play. Even though it's called Cymbeline, it's really more about his daughter Imogene and what's happening to her, which we'll do the scenario in just a few minutes and I'll try to make that clear. This is a, a unique play because it cannot really be classified in any of the classifications we usually classify Shakespeare's works. It's not really a history, even though it's based on a historical person. It's not really a comedy. It's funny. It has very funny moments in it, but it also gets incredibly dark. It's not really a tragedy because everything ends happily for everybody involved, except for the Queen and Clotten, which you'll learn about in a moment as well. So it doesn't really fit with any of the classifications that Shakespeare has, has had his work classified in the past. So you end up calling it something else, and it's called a romance. And romances are those plays that were written later in Shakespeare's life, towards the end of his writing, they were almost all romances. And this is one of his later plays. And the thing that characterizes romances the most, at least to me, is how much it is about the relationship Shakespeare had with his family. Because these romances are by and large about a man and his relationship with his daughter. Shakespeare at this time knows he's getting on in years. He's gonna stop writing soon. So he is really starting to write much more about his daughters and what he might find. He does not know them. He's been separated from his family for so long and his writing seems to say, was this worth it? Should I have done this? Is there some value to it? And he starts to write about young women who are incredibly chaste, virtuous, wonderful. Now that changes in Troilus and Cressida, but we'll talk about that next week. This is really about a father's idealized version of his daughter and the story that might happen within it. This is Shakespeare's take on what he hopes he's going to find. And that's my theory anyway, when he returns home to Stratford. Okay, but before we go too far afield, uh, let's do one of my favorite parts, where my boy gets to tell us about the quotes. So, Finn, what did you want to say? And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. And there are some great quotes in this show. For instance, uh, Yakimo, who's in Act 1, Scene 4, he's uh, kind of a villain and kind of not, but he, he does do some dastardly things. Anyway, Yakimo has a great line in Act 1, Scene 4, where he says, Lest the bargain should catch cold and starve. I love that. It means hit while the iron's hot, but it is an incredibly clever and crafty way of saying that particular phrase. He also says in Act 2, Scene 2, and this is a very funny quote, how bravely thou becomest thy bed. <laughs> How bravely thou becomest thy bed. It means you look good lying there. <laughs> it's, I'm going to start using that a lot. And then there's a couple of quotes that really are still being used today. For instance, Belarius in Act 3, Scene 3, gives this quote, which we use today. The game is up. It was Shakespeare who said that. And now every time you say the game is up, you're quoting Shakespeare. He also has Pisanio, a servant in the show, in Act 3, Scene 6, say the phrase, I have not slept one wink. I'm sure we've all said that at one time or another, and I bet we didn't know we were quoting Shakespeare. But anyway, okay, I'm going to run out of time. 
because this is kind of a complicated play. So let's get to the scenario. I'll do as much of it as I can on this first half, and then we'll finish up on the second. What is the story of Cymbeline? All right, so here's the fun plot to Cymbeline. King Cymbeline is ruling over Britain. Again, this is in prehistory Britain. And as a king, he really is a vassal king because Rome is in control of Britain as it is in control of most of the Western world. And he is expected to pay tribute to Rome on an annual basis for the right to be king in Britain. However, as the play opens, Cymbeline has decided he is not paying another tribute to Rome ever again. And he says to Caius, the Roman soldier who's there, you're not getting it. And Caius warns him, if we don't get it, we will return with an army and take it from you. So things are not starting out well for Cymbeline. On top of that, he learns from his wife, the queen, which by the way, Shakespeare never really gives a name to. It's another hint that Shakespeare himself is not crazy about married people. You see very bad married people in Shakespeare's plays. And this is a queen that Disney villains would have been in envy of. She's horrible. And she is plotting in the meantime to try and kill Cymbeline and have her son installed as king of Britain. Nevertheless, the queen has just informed Cymbeline that his beautiful daughter Imogene has married beneath her station. In secret, she's married a soldier by the name of Postumus. And Postumus grew up in the court. Cymbeline knows him. He raised him like a son. And he is very upset by this. You see, Imogene is his only child left. I say left because he had two sons two infants' sons who were kidnapped and taken away from him many years ago when he believes them to be dead. So Imogene must marry correctly if she is indeed going to be Queen of Britain someday. And he's certain that the best person for her to marry is the Queen's son from a previous marriage allowed by the name of Clouton. Yes, that's right. He wants his daughter to marry her stepbrother. Gross. Once he finds out that Posthumus and Imogene have gotten married, Cymbeline blows a cork and says, Posthumus must be banished. And he banishes him from Britain and sends him off to Italy. Unfortunately, before he goes, Posthumus has one last meeting with his wife where they trade tokens. He gives her a bracelet and she gives him a ring that they both promise they will never be parted from their gifts. And off Posthumus goes. Very soon, he's off in Italy and he runs into a soldier by the name of Giacomo. And Giacomo is hanging out with other Italian soldiers, talking about the beauty and grace of Italian women. And of course, Posthumus goes off about how beautiful Imogene is and how chaste she is. Giacomo is certain he could bet her. So he decides to make a bet. He will travel to Britain and try to sleep with Imogene. If he succeeds and can bring back proof that he succeeded, he gets to have Imogene. However, if he fails, he will have to duel with Posthumus for challenging his wife's good and honest nature. So off he goes to Britain. Once Giacomo gets there, he go, wastes no time and tries to win over Imogene. Imogene refuses him at every step. Giacomo says, you should have relations with me because your husband is off in Italy and he is having relations with everyone he can meet. She calls him a fool, says he's a liar and refuses to any advance of Giacomo. Finally, Giacomo says, okay, you're right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have tried any of these tricks on you. You're way too smart. I apologize. Hey, by the way, would you mind if I leave a giant chest in your room? It's all of my travel belongings and I, I just want to keep it safe. And in her good nature, she agrees to keep this chest filled with his belongings in her room until he leaves the next day. Unbeknown to Imogene, 
Yakimo is secretly going to be hiding in that chest. Now, meanwhile, the queen has gone to her doctor and says, I need a poison to get rid of some pests. The doctor knows it's not going to be animals she's after and indeed suspects she'll poison Cymbeline. So, instead of giving her a poison, he gives her a sleeping draught, something that will knock somebody out for a good long time and seem like they're dead, thus foiling her plot when that person would wake up again. She takes this potion, thinking it's poison, and gives it to Pisanio, who is a servant for Imogene, and says, Look, Imogene looks like she's been in a lot of distress lately over the expulsion of her husband. Hang on to this, and when she gets her in her saddest mood, please give her this potion, it will make her feel better. And Pisanio says, of course, I will indeed give it to her should the need arise. Alright, so in Act 2, Yakimo comes out of that chest in the middle of the night. Imogene is asleep on her bed. He makes note of the room so he knows what he can tell to Postumus and say, look what I did, I was in her room. And he pulls back the covers and sees her half naked. And there is a mole under one of her breasts. He makes note of that too. And he talks about her beautiful body. And he talks about wanting to immediately violate her. But then he decides, no, it's safer if he gets back in the chest and he waits till morning. But he spies the bracelet. He takes it with him as he goes back into the chest. Later, in Act 2, he arrives back in Italy, brags about having slept with Imogene to Postumus, and not only describes her bedroom and this mole under her breast, he also produces this lovely bracelet. Postumus is furious and believes his wife has been disloyal. So... In Act 3, he pens two letters. He sends them to his, one to his servant, Pisanio, saying, I want you to kill Imogene for being unfaithful. She will be heading to a port city. When she leaves for that port city, follow her and kill her when she arrives. The other letter he sends to Imogene, saying, Meet me in this port city of Milford Haven in Wales, and I will be waiting for you. So, she decides to take off immediately and go to see her husband. Pisanio is very worried about what will happen, and he certainly doesn't want to kill her. He knows there's some kind of mistake. But he talks her into dressing up as a boy to save herself from being recognized, and also to protect her on her journey. He also tells her that he has this potion that will help ease her pain if she should ever need it. And the two of them head off for Milford. But first, he takes some of her clothes and pours blood on them, and has these clothes sent to Postumus, declaring that he has succeeded, that he has killed his wife Imogene. Off they go, but news soon reaches to Clotten. Clotten, the prince, by the way, who is not very bright or very sweet, decides he must follow after them. His plan is to meet up with Posthumus first, kill Posthumus, lie in wait, and when Imogene arrives, attack her, rape her, and then carry her off and force her to marry him. That's right. His plan is to rape her and then force her to marry him. He's a neat guy. But in order to do this, he first dresses in Postumus's clothes and heads out after them so he can try to beat them to this Milford in Wales where they are going to have their rendezvous. All right, that's the first three acts of William Shakespeare's Cymbeline. It really is a great read. It's a very quick read, too, if you want to read it. A lot of really beautiful poetry. As a matter of fact, it's thought of to be some of his best in his later years. We're going to talk more about it and the story behind it on the other side. Thank you for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, and I'll be back after this brief message. Bye-bye.
right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Shunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75 Live. I'm Shannon Riley, and I'm once again talking about the works of William Shakespeare. And today we're talking about Cymbeline. By the way, if you'd like to reach me, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at ShannonJRiley.com. Just sending me an email there. Remember, Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y, ShannonJRiley.com. I'd love to hear from any of you. And while you're at ShannonJRiley.com, check out my short plays, my short films, and let me know if you'd like to produce any of them. We'd love to see more people doing our plays. All right, so today we're talking about Cymbeline. And a really quick recap, um, we have Cymbeline who is running to Milford, which is on the coast of Wales, to meet with Posthumus, her husband. She is being joined by her servant, Pisanio, who has now taken bloody clothes and mailed them off to Posthumus, her husband, to confirm that she is dead for an infidelity she did not commit. However, Posthumus feels terrible about what he's done and immediately regrets ordering her death. Now, having said that, still in Act 3, Clotten, this idiot, son of the Queen, who wants to marry Imogene himself, learns that Imogene has left for Milford to meet with Posthumus, so he decides he's going to beat her there. He dresses in Posthumus's clothes, his meanest clothes, and rides after her. His goal is to get there ahead of her, kill Posthumus, meet up with her, rape her, and then take her off and force her to marry him. That's exactly what I said. He plans to rape her and force her to marry him. Neat, neat guy, this Clotten. All right, so when we get to Act 4, we're in Wales. And Clotten happens upon two young hunters named Polydorn and Adwell. Now, these hunters have befriended Imogene, who has showed up at their cave, trying, hungry, starving, they fed her, but they think it's a boy by the name of Fideli. And they, they have this kindred relationship with her instantly. They care about this young boy. Clotten shows up and he's incredibly arrogant. So arrogant, it ticks the boys off and they decide to have a fight with him. What he doesn't know is that both of these boys just happen to be truly the missing sons of Cymbeline, who happen to be living in the cave with their stepfather who kidnapped them after being expelled from the kingdom by Cymbeline years and years ago. Anyway, now one of these sons, Gildarius, decides to fight with Clotten, and they move off to fight. Well, they, they must have quite a battle off stage because he comes back with the head in his hand of Clotten. Gildarius says he's going to go throw the head into the water where he can tell the fish it's a prince, and they bring in this headless body to the cave. Imogene, in the meantime, has been so distraught about everything that has happened to her and how lost she is, she's decided to take that medicine that was given to her by Pisanio which turns out to be a very powerful sleeping potion that the queen had ordered, thinking it was poison. Stay with me here. They find Imogene, Fideli is her name, lying on the ground dead. And they decide, oh no, we've got to bury these two together. And he, they lay down the headless body of Clotten next to Fideli and go off to dig graves. I told you it's a little dark. Well, Imogene, of course, wakes up beside a headless body wearing her husband's clothes and thinks, of course, this must be Posthumus. 
she starts to weep and she starts to wail and she falls apart, thinking indeed that she has lost her husband. Now, who should come upon her but a Roman general by the name of Caius Lucius. Now, Caius has been sent to collect this tribute with an army. They are going to invade Britain and they are going to make King Cymbeline pay. But he finds this young page by the name of Fideli crying over a dead body. Imogen quickly tells him that it is the body of her master and she is sorry that he has passed away. Keyes thinks this is such a great person to so worry about their master, he immediately takes Imogen on as his page as they march forward to do battle with her father's forces, Cymbeline. In the meantime, Posthumus has returned to Britain as well, and he is so wanting to make up for this crime that he has done of having his beautiful bride killed that he dresses in the soldier's equipment and he decides to fight while a huge battle erupts between the British and the Roman forces. And who should join that fight? But of course, Morgan and his two sons. But they are not his two sons. He, and he's not Morgan. His real name is Belarius. And Belarius was banished years ago by Cymbeline and, to pay him back, had kidnapped his infant sons and taken them with him and raised them himself in this cave. Their real names are Gildarius and Avaragus, the sons of Cymbeline, and they join the fight as well, fighting alongside, in disguise, of course, Posthumus. Back in Cymbeline's court, the queen suddenly dies. She's been so distraught over her missing son, Clotus, fearing that he has indeed been killed, she herself dies, but doesn't die until she admits her plots and her treasons to everyone around him, and Cymbeline knows of what a horrible woman that he had married. The Romans are routed by the British, and immediately they're all condemned to death, including Imogene, Iacomo, and Posthumus. Keys asked for Fideli's freedom, saying that she's nothing but a page, she didn't mean any harm, she wasn't really with us, and Cymbeline grants the request. But immediately Imogene, disguised again as Fideli, notices the ring that Iacomo has on his hand and demands to know where he got it. He admits to everything, the lie, hiding in the chest, what he did in order to win it from this poor man named Posthumus. Posthumus reveals himself to be who he is and says he feels so terrible because he himself had Imogene killed. Imogene runs to him and jumps into his arms saying, oh my husband, I found you. He pushes her off, throws her on the ground because he thinks she's a boy. She immediately takes off her disguise and is revealed as Imogene. And at that point, the two men who were fought alongside Cymbeline's arm and did such a great job are also revealed by Morgan to be none other than the king's sons. The king is so happy to have his sons back that he grants Imogene right to marry whoever she wants and tells the Romans he'll pay the tribute. He really meant to do it all along. It was his evil queen who kept him from doing it. And he invites them all to a feast. Dun -da -da -da. Happy ending. And that's Cymbeline. So let's talk about Cymbeline. First of all, Shakespeare goes back to his very roots with complicated plots, multiple characters that you almost need a scoreboard to keep track of who is who and where they are going. He also uses as a reference Geoffrey Mammoth's The History and Regium of Britannia. So he does pick up some in history. You could kind of call this a history, but he doesn't use any of the real history revolving around the king that Cymbeline is based upon. He does go back and borrow some Greek sources. He borrows some Chaucer sources and mixes a bunch of stories together in order to come up with Cymbeline. But more than anything else, he goes back to old, tried and true things that Shakespeare has done in previous plays and previous texts. Some people have argued he worked with co-author, though I highly doubt that. There is a chunky piece in the middle that could have possibly been created, but it also could have come from another playwright 
long after Shakespeare was dead. It could have been added before it was ever in Shakespeare's original text, before it was ever put into the first folio. So it's very likely that Shakespeare wrote this entire play. But let's go back to what I said before. You have to remember when Shakespeare wrote it and why. You have to remember when Shakespeare wrote it and why he wrote it. Shakespeare is nearing the end of his writing life. It's almost time for him to go home, and he knows it. He's going home to a daughter he doesn't really recognize or know. Two daughters, actually. But what I think is very unique about this is he's writing about this paragon of virtue. These young ladies who are so beautiful, but so virtuous that their fathers can't have anything but great pride in them. And here he writes about Cymbeline, a king who is an absentee father. He has very little to do with Imogene, and he even misses terribly his two sons, doesn't even think they're still alive anymore. So here is a guy, Shakespeare, who lived far away from his family, does not know his own children, writing a, a play about a king who doesn't know his own children. It's no wonder he named it Cymbeline. He's writing about himself. Imogene is the main character of this play, but unlike other of the more recent women that Shakespeare was writing, strong, independent, powerful women that can own their space, that really can determine their own history, determine their own path. Imogene is a damsel in distress. She needs to be saved at every single turn. She is not this great power that is to be reckoned with in and of herself. This is the kind of ideal that Shakespeare is building for his young daughters. What I really think is really ironic about that is that it starts with Cymbeline casting his daughter out because she's married against his will. And this is exactly what happens to Shakespeare when he returns to London. His daughter, Judith, marries. But she marries against his will. She marries a man by the name of Quinny. And Quinny had sued Shakespeare in the past. He has a bad reputation. And in fact, his mistress even gives birth to his child a month after he marries Judith. Shakespeare disowns Judith. He sends her away. He says he'll never look upon her again. She's buried in the church of Stratford-on-Avon, but not in the family plot inside the church. She was so desperate to get back in her dad's graces, as a matter of fact, that she has a son, and the son she names Shakespeare. Unfortunately, that child dies in infancy, and there's no record that Shakespeare ever, ever made peace with Judith. So, here is history following what Shakespeare had written in literature. Kind of sad in a way. Now, I did have another daughter, Suzanne. Susanna, on the other hand, married quite well a doctor by the name of John Hall. And Shakespeare spent a great deal of time with John Hall. Matter of fact, John Hall had accompanied Shakespeare back to London several times to see shows before he died. What we don't know is if he traveled with Shakespeare in the practice as a doctor or whether or not he went as a loving son-in-law. There is possibility that Shakespeare was not well towards the end of his life. And maybe this son-in-law went along just to keep him healthy and happy. Now, they had a daughter by the name of Elizabeth who married a man by the name of Thomas Nash. And it's the Nash family that kind of has lived on with the possibility of having the same DNA as William Shakespeare. Anyway, that's a little bit off the subject and I could do that at another time. Let's go back to Cymbeline. 
Cymbeline is this wonderful structure of a romance wrapped in a history, wrapped in a comedy, wrapped in a tragedy. It even has elements of magic in it. I forgot to mention that at one point, Posthumus is so distraught over what has happened, he falls asleep and he has a dream where he's visited by many of his past family members who would be crying and praying that somehow poor Posthumus's life can be saved. And it's saved by none other than the god Jupiter who descends from the heavens and tells him all will be well. This playing with magic with supernatural elements is something Shakespeare does a lot in his later plays. It is something that he really does enjoy writing. Even from Midsummer and on, there are these moments and flares of magic and mystery that happen in his plays. Shakespeare is a fanciful writer now. He is less engrossed in the stories that really tell the history of London and much more engrossed into the idea of telling stories about man's condition, where man is going, and was it worth the trip? Shakespeare, I think, here is really dealing with a lot of interpersonal relationships and issues that might possibly lead him to retirement early. Cymbeline is a very fast-paced, fast-moving play and is a joy to read. So, if you don't know Cymbeline, check it out. There's a couple of versions that are online that you can watch right now. It is really some beautiful language. Some people have said it's some of the greatest language of his latter poetry. Your assignment before next week, read Cymbeline or watch it. It's more fun to watch it, I think, sometimes. Any case, thank you for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday as we wrap up the works of William Shakespeare with another romance, Troilus and Cressida. I'll see you next Sunday. Until then, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye. <laughs>